last night about the fall of France in the summer of 1940. And the general, Renault, calls up Churchill and says, it's over. And Churchill said, how can it be? You got the greatest army in Europe. How can it be over? He said, it's over. So I had that suppressed feeling. It's about 1.15 Moscow time. This thing is going very well for Vladimir Putin. I promise you. He, 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 he's probably staying up watching us right now. How you doing, Brad? I think that the rest of us that sort of look at politics have underestimated the sheer, unadulterated rage, the anger of working class people, especially young people who are living in, with three uh, roommates and have a Lyft job and an Uber job and they can't make it and they're looking at my generation, Gen X, who we could have it all in the Clinton years and we were living well and our parents and grandparents and they're like throw the tables over they're turning the tables over. these again are people who work on the strip within two and a half miles of the Bellagio largely people of color of those the majority are Latino and they are clearly at least from eyeballing it strongly in favor of Bernie Sanders I think this is a wake-up moment for the American power establishment. From Michael Bloomberg to those of us in the media, to the Democratic Party, to donors, to CEOs, many in this establishment are behaving, in my view, as, as they face the prospect of a Bernie Sanders nomination, like out-of-touch aristocrats in a dying aristocracy. Just sort of, how do we stop this? How do we block this? And there is no curiosity. Why is this happening? What is going on in the lives of my fellow citizens in this country. They may be voting for something that I find it so hard to understand. What is happening? What is happening? This is a moment for curiosity. I have no idea what voters think about anything anymore. Last weekend's victory in Nevada was a political earthquake so large and consequential that even our friends in the media were not able to minimize it, ignore it, or spin it in favor of our opponents. Bernie won just about every demographic slice. He won with young voters and those in their 50s. He won with white voters and Latinos, the latter by more than 50%. He won with men and with women. He came in second among black voters behind Joe Biden as well as with self-described moderate voters, beating out candidates like Buttigieg and Klobuchar, whose entire campaigns are premised on an appeal to so-called moderates. You may recall after New Hampshire, cable news types making the absurd argument that Bernie would have lost if you combined the votes of all his moderate rivals. Well, even if you did that in Nevada, Bernie still would have come out on top. In short, Bernie won, which means that you won too. Savor it, take heart, and then return to the fight because the next few weeks could decide the entire race and make Bernie Sanders the next president of the United States. After Nevada, no one can contest that Bernie is the front runner for the Democratic nomination. Nationally, he is number one with Black voters, number one with Latino voters, and number one with white voters. Which makes it kind of odd that so many Democrats have been on TV asking, how do we stop Bernie? The answer from the Democratic establishment is to support a Republican billionaire who backed stop and frisk and social security cuts to be the Democratic nominee. As we record this, 
Bloomberg, who definitely is an oligarch, by the way, announced plans to spend another fraction of his enormous fortune blitzing U.S. airways with anti-burning ads packed with disingenuous attacks about how Bernie wants to take away your health care by making it universal and free, or about how Bernie, the candidate who has the largest, most racially diverse, working-class coalition in the race, is somehow divisive. This about a candidate who consistently beats every other candidate and Donald Trump in head-to-head matchups. Fun fact, Bernie beats Trump, but Trump beats Bloomberg in head-to-head polls. Bloomberg isn't alone in his bizarre attempt to paint himself as a unity candidate. Mayor Pete's speech following the Nevada caucus results attacked Bernie as divisive. Ironic since he can't seem to get above 4% with non-white voters. And you'd be forgiven for thinking that Joe Biden's spiel about his second place finish, a full 26 points behind Bernie, was in fact a victory speech. The fact is, we're the clear frontrunner now, and now they're grasping for straws. Democratic socialism is about putting the people, the demos, in power to serve the people, society. It's right there in the name. But in the coming days, you will hear that Bernie somehow has an affinity for authoritarians, all while Michael Bloomberg, who literally referred to the NYPD as his own personal army, and changed state rules so that he could run for a third term, fails to come under similar scrutiny. You will hear that Bernie never accomplished anything, despite the fact that his advocacy for Disney workers and Amazon workers has already secured a $15 minimum wage for hundreds of thousands of Americans, disproportionately black and brown. Check out episode 34 for more on Bernie's record, by the way. When you hear these attacks, Remember that they are signs we are winning. Our fellow candidates, at least those who aren't billionaires, are running low on cash and desperately need to distinguish themselves to stay in the race. They can't win on ideas, so they're resorting to petty smears and misrepresentations. But here's the thing, we're still gonna win. This is Hear the Burn, a podcast about the people, ideas, and politics that are driving the Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign and the movement to secure a dignified life for everyone living in this country. My name is Brianna Joy Gray, and I'm coming to you from campaign headquarters in Washington, D.C. In this, our last episode of Black History Month, I want to highlight what this campaign that some establishment Democrats are looking to tear down actually looks like. So I assembled a panel of Black Bernie staffers from teams across the campaign to ask why they support the old white guy. Then I chatted with Dr. Victoria Dooley, a general practitioner based in Michigan and an invaluable campaign surrogate about how Medicare for All would quite literally save the lives of her diverse patients. My first question for our staffers was, why is representation so important within the campaign? What difference does it make in the kinds of stories we tell and the issues we focus on? Media producer Sam Adamarola was the first to answer. Representation really matters, and specifically to my department is we do all the storytelling on video. So 
it matters that when we are putting things out that you see faces that look like you. And even further, when you are going out to get stories from specific communities, you want to have somebody who can speak to that community to ask pointed questions that people from other communities may not know to ask. So you can get deeper to the nuances of what is really plaguing that specific community. So mm. from this perspective of, you know, doing the videos and producing media, that's particularly important to have a, a black face there. It's really important. I think that black people are telling black stories. Stories can be told a plethora of ways, but when you have people that look like you telling your story, I think that really helps convey the message and helps portray what you're trying to say. What part of that message has resonated with all of you? What has drawn you to join this campaign, Erica? I think from my own personal story, specifically on how policy tends to affect the disenfranchised the most. So policy that I hear um, that speaks to me personally is something that I gravitate towards. I'm a student recently um, in one of my classes, um, my professor was talking about like descriptive differences or similarities in a candidate and ideological similarities or differences in a candidate. And she was talking about like, okay, well, you're a black woman. This candidate or this candidate, may you may descriptively have something in common with them or maybe your backgrounds may be similar. But then the candidate that you support is like your ideological similarity. These um, policies, these things that Senator Sanders fought for or believes in or is pushing for, those are the things that speak to me as a person. Those are things that I know that I need. So it makes no difference to me if you look like me, if you're not pulling for the same things that I need. So I see a lot of nods. I mean, what kind of conversations are you guys having with friends or family when you go home? Because there's been a lot of conversation. Bernie, I, I should say first and foremost, we're, he's number one with black voters now as of yesterday. So big yeah. up for that. People have yeah. been doing some work around this table. <laughs> But also, there is a lot of conversation about how he's more popular with younger black mm -hmm. voters than older black voters. And a lot of voters who are apparently now getting into Michael Bloomberg, the force of these ads in the South has been particularly pop, uh, powerful, apparently. So have you been having conversations around the dinner table, tables like these with your family members? And what, if so, what has been the most effective from your perspective? I feel like I've recently talked to my father about this, um, who is an immigrant. And he was talking about, well, you know, what do you think about this candidate? Well, Bloomberg has entered the race. What do you think about him? And I said, I don't see a large difference, maybe on a, on another side of the scale, but like, I don't see a lot of huge differences between Bloomberg and his background and what he, his policies were that he fought for and things like that from Trump. Mm -hmm. Bloomberg was a Republican up until what, a few, just a few years ago. They have golfing <laughs> pictures together. And, you know, when people golf together, they share stories. And <laughs> it's not, you don't golf with people you're not really messing with. Golf is intimate, too. Like It is. It's, I, it's, I, it's, I it's more know. intimate than, like, basketball. It's a, <laughs> from, it's a slow game. Yeah, it's really, yeah. You, you have actually to have to ride a card to get <laughs> to the next <laughs> You have conversation on those rides. To uh, Erica's point about being immigrant, what attracts me to Bernie uh, specifically is one, you know, the picture of him getting arrested for protesting during the civil rights, protesting housing segregations in, in Chicago. 
2015, I saw that picture. I can't vote. I'm not a citizen of the U.S. I'm a permanent resident. I was gone through deportation hearings and things of that sort. Uh, Being a black immigrant from Nigeria, um, I have that a duality in, in my blackness, being raised in America and having cultural roots back at home. Segue that to the update in the travel brand, including Nigeria, and the conversations I'm having now with my sister who is trying to work on having her children come here, mm. you know, for a better life and better opportunity. Segue that to my father now who is trying to go back home to kind of, you know, be at peace. They know that it's deeper than just getting a racist out of the office. It's like, what are those policies that are going to help our communities and our family be better? Because I lost my mom through through a preventable disease. Mm -hmm. And she didn't know she had that disease until she had it. And that was because low-income family, you're afraid to go to the hospital because of those bills. So Medicare for All speaks to me. You know, obviously being a black man in America, criminal justice and you know, I've been stopped by the police. I've been questioned. I have, I've had all those experiences from both of my, my, I guess, dualities of blackness. So he's the only candidate that kind of checks everything off for a future I want for my one day kids and what I want for myself and what I want for my family members. I went to a pretty conservative college. That's where I first heard Senator Sanders speak. He didn't have to speak there, but he, he did speak and he really, he really made an impact. And even people that had really conservative views liked what he had to say, getting to know him more and doing my research and then eventually working for him, he hasn't changed. I mean, everything he he has proposed or like, he's been fighting for people's rights since the 80s. And I mean, it's the same stance. I mean, there's literally a video, it feels like for everything or a clip for everything. He's an open book. Most campaigns would fear someone digging up and finding old footage. You know, we embrace it. We look for it. We try to put it in videos. We try to put it in content. (laughs) So. I think something that worries us. Right, right. And I think that along with a lot of the points that that Sam made, I mean, is why I stand with Senator Sanders. I stand with Bernie. Are there examples of things you think that have come out of this campaign, concrete examples you can point to that you don't think would exist or wouldn't at least look the same way if we all weren't here? When we talk about going to specific places in this country that, you know, demographically are more black. Representation matters because it's also comfort, right? So when we're like setting up calls to go to places, right? One colleague may talk to someone who's who, who you know, there's like cues that we know as as black folk to you know code kind of code switch. <laughs> the black to, telepathy too. Basically, mm-hmm. and, and it's a little bit of code switching where you can kind of disarm somebody, especially when you're trying to get a story from someone. Yeah. You want like intimate details, you want people to be able to feel calm and relaxed. So Part of that is having pre-interviews, calling the person and saying, hey, we're coming to your city. We want to speak with you and we want to, you know, make sure X, Y and Z is is okay." So non-white colleagues, the conversation can be different. And there was a specific example where a colleague spoke to a person and then I guess that person wasn't quite understanding. And then when it came to me talking, I was like, hey, we want to do this, that. You know, I can't really point to exactly what I said, but I just know that after I spoke to that person, they understood like, okay, a level of comfort. It's a level of comfort. You could kind of tell. A project we did early on in the beginning, we were in South Carolina and we were traveling with some of the early staff and we were doing a piece on gentrification and we were working with some of the local like folks who like are part of the community as far as in the church community and just, you know, local elected officials and 
They took us around South Carolina and showed us some of the areas where it was really dysfunctional. There wasn't like a lot of livable life there. Like people had broken homes. There wasn't like, you know, playgrounds or a mm-hmm. lot of schools. It was just really torn up. And then not too far, like across the river, if I had to say, there were new condos being built in these areas where predominantly black folks live. It's important to say that we're all black, but I think we serve this campaign to a to a greater degree beyond just working on you know black issues. Right. I think we bring a a sense of multiculturalism that allows us to to just affect the campaign more broadly. Mm-hmm. You know that informs everything beyond just how it affects black people. Right. But about your black policies, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you know I've worked on the HBCU policy. Woo, yes. Good to that. Glad yes. We, we did that. And, yeah. Thank you. And, um, you know, we're the first. Let's right. put that out there. The first, yeah. yeah. We're the first. We're definitely the best plan. Mm-hmm. And and beyond that, and plenty of the other plans that we released, so, you know, play yeah. the role in. So. That's the point of intersectionality. To your first right. point, that's the point of intersectionality. It was when exactly. you have a lot of different kinds of people working on all of these kinds of plans with a lot of different backgrounds. Right. You make sure that everything is tying into everything else and then right. nobody's left behind. Right. Yeah. Well, as my last question, I want to ask you what you would say to people or what you will say to people when they they say, well, why are you supporting Bernie? You're you're black. Why are you supporting Bernie? Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a bit like, why wouldn't you? Going back to like track record mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and people that are like Johnny come lately. Mm-hmm. I hear that a lot. Consistency, especially when I talk to black people. Yeah. I hear people talk about his consistency. Because that's the, that's the thing, I think, one of the main things that like differentiates him from other candidates is with his age, with his experience, with his time in the game, whatever you want to call it, you can see like what he fought for. You can yeah. see his stance on women's rights, on the right to choose and abortion being included in health care. You can see what his his stance would be on something like a stop and frisk. You can see what his stance would be on environmental issues. You can see all of this. However, with some candidates, you can see that as well. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't look so good. You have to have a vision for a better world, right? Like everything cannot be about, you know, pragmatism. You can't always be pragmatic with everything. You have to be able to have a vision of a better world. And that's truly why I support Senator Sanders, in addition to his track record, fighting for the same things over and over again. And two, it's like you have to remember that in order to achieve these things, you need a collective of people. And that's he's not a politician that's selling you dreams that only I can do this. You know, we have a president who says, I will be the savior. Bernie Sanders has consistently said it's going to take all of us together doing this because it won't just because he's in the White House doesn't mean that all these things are going to be passed. He says he's going to be the organizer in chief and he sells us that and he makes us believe that we are energized. And that's why we have like as many donations as we do, as much support as we do, because he lets us know that it's going to be up to us to make this happen. And I think when you are able to give the power to the people. You know, and say, this is our opportunity. This is our government. We have to take control. So I think that's what I will ultimately tell people. He's not selling you dreams. He's letting you know that we can do this. Um, I think when I talk to a lot of black people, you know, whether it be church or just, you know, people that I know, they, they say, oh, we like Bernie. You know, he's cool, but ah, it's an electability. Can, can he beat Trump? And mm-hmm. I mean, 
there's only one way to find out, and that's that's when you vote. Right, yeah, like right, right. If you don't vote, you know he's gonna stay in office. So, so vote. I Are mean, and, and that that's what I always end up telling them. They always usually say, mm, "Well, can he be Trump? Right, vote? right." <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, they say, "Well, I'll think about it." Well, thinking about it is think what happens. Right. Don't just think, do. My favorite part about working for this campaign is working with wonderful people like you all. Aww. And no, seriously. And you know, right now the <laughs> on the internet it's all this talk about like, you know, the vitriol and Bernie Bros. And I've been working mm-hmm. with Bernie for like three years now and I still haven't met a Bernie bro. So it's great that we had this opportunity, you know, to yeah. talk and show ourselves to so people can see that this campaign isn't Bernie Bros. That was lovely, Terrell. Thank you for Thank that. You. Sure. here wants the same thing essentially when you go to work. You want to be treated fairly, you want to be respected, and you want to be paid accordingly. And I'm going to take it, I want to be overpaid. I'm going to put it like that, right? But unfortunately, that's not what's happening. And we're here because of one thing, corporate greed. Plain and simple, right? So let me say this in closing, right? You do not have to be me in order to fight alongside one another. Yeah. And everybody is giant does not have to be you to realize that our fight is the same. Yeah. And I'm going to say like Fannie Lou, hey, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I am so grateful to be joined today by Dr. Victoria Dooley, who is one of our most compelling surrogates, who's been on the campaign trail working like we're paying her, even though we're not, Um, and who I brought on today to talk about Medicare for All, and in particular, as a practicing physician, what, what your perspective is on why it's so important and why there's so many gains to be had there for cost savings. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about your, your background and your practice? Yes, I'm a family medicine physician. I completed my med school training in Detroit, and then I completed my residency training in Flint. And now I practice in the suburbs of Detroit. I have a diverse practice, but because evidence has shown that people of color usually have better outcomes when they have a doctor of color, Mm. um, people from all over the area seek out me as a black physician. Mm. Um, But I do have a very diverse practice of all ages from youth through seniors. So we hear a lot about um, health gaps, the maternal mortality gap and other kinds of health gaps between black Americans and white Americans. What are some of the reasons? What are some of the primary factors that go into that? Being uninsured is a major issue. Mm. Um, Brianna, when you look at every effort we've made in this country to ensure more people, whether it be Medicaid expansion or Medicare or the Affordable Care Act, every single time there is still a disproportionate amount of poor people of all colors, black and brown people who are still left uninsured. Even after the Affordable Care Act, African-Americans are still twice as likely to be uninsured as white Americans. Mm. And so, no, if you don't have the means to get to a doctor to get prevention, if you don't have the means to get to a doctor to get prescriptions, you're going to get sicker and you're going to die earlier. Is this something that you've observed in your practice? Because I've read stories and yeah, please tell us a little. Absolutely. All the time, Brianna. That's why I'm so passionate about ending health disparities, because, again, my practice is very diverse, but I have a lot of black females in my practice. 
and all patients of all backgrounds and all incomes are complaining about these rising healthcare costs. Mm. So we have more insurance in this country with the Affordable Care Act, but we have done nothing to address the underinsurance issue mm. with these rising deductibles and copays and et cetera. So patients of all backgrounds complain about rising healthcare costs, but my black women are my most likely to tell me that they are going out of medications and that they are delaying and refusing services due to costs. Mm. And so part of that is because it's a bigger issue for people of color. And another part of it might be they're more comfortable telling me that mm. because I'm a black woman myself. It's embarrassing to tell your doctor that you can't afford your prescriptions. Mm. But if you have a doctor who's not willing to work with you and help you find solutions, if you did tell them that, then maybe it's time to look for another doctor. I mean, I've had situations where I've had black women come to my office and they tell me that they're taking their medicines and it's just not adding up. With the electronic medical records nowadays, I can see that they haven't filled it and they're swearing up and down, Dr. Dooley, Dr. Dooley, I'm taking it. Yeah. So then I get on the phone, I call the pharmacy just to verify and they say, no, she has not picked up this medicine in you know, six, 12 months. And then I go back in the room. I say, I'm not being accusatory, yeah. but I, in order for me to help you, I need you to be honest with me. Why are you not taking your medications? And then the vast majority of the time is because of costs. Mm. And so as a medical student and in training, we talk about something called patient noncompliance. And it's really a ridiculous subject to talk about because we don't talk about the reasons why patients are, quote unquote, noncompliant with taking their medications. I had a young black male come to me and he had diabetes for some time. He had been off his insulin for three years, Brianna, three years. And I said, you know, how come it's been so long that you've been off your insulin? And he said, Dr. Dooley. I was making $9 an hour and I had health insurance, but it had a $3,000 deductible and my insulin was costing about $250 a month. I was not taking my insulin because I could not afford it. So what good is health insurance if you are making minimum wages, $250 a month, that's a car note. How could anybody afford that? So it is a huge issue for African-Americans ending health disparities. And so, yeah, some people say to me, oh, well, Medicare for all is not going to eliminate racism, right? Right. Well, that may be true. But before a doctor can discriminate against you, you have to be able to go to the doctor to be discriminated against. (laughs) Right. At the table before they can even dismiss you. And then also with Senator Sanders' Medicare for all bill, he is going to make it illegal for healthcare providers to discriminate against people because of race or gender or sexuality, et cetera. So we are addressing the issue of underinsurance and this senator is going even farther and addressing the issue of racial bias in care. When healthcare providers don't believe black women, which they don't believe black women's pain story. We have a wonderful surrogate, Corey Bush, who has, oh my God, a heartbreaking story about her pregnancy and when her doctor didn't believe her as a black woman. When healthcare providers do not believe black patients, they die. Providers have to be trained and racial biases, and they have to be held accountable for when they dismiss Black patients' concerns. That's so compelling. I really appreciate that. I, I'm curious what you're, would you say to folks then who argue, well, we just can't afford it. Where are we going to find the money? Do you, I know that one of our arguments is that there's so much administrative waste that goes on. Is that something that you have insight into as a practicing physician? Oh, absolutely. I opened my own practice from scratch. And the reason why I did so is because when I graduated, I was getting offers of 
65 cents on the dollar compared to my white male colleagues. Wow. So I said, this is ridiculous. If anybody's going to underpay me, it's going to be me underpaying myself. <laughs> so I said, I'm not working for 65 cents on the dollar. I'll work for zero. I fortunately, I was able to be a stay-at-home daughter while I built up my practice. And so just the time and the energy spent in building alone at my small practice, it became impossible for us to handle. And then you have all this administrative waste. There's something called prior authorization. Have you heard of that? I haven't. So prior authorization is a way for basically for insurance companies to kill people. So I might write your prescription for a life-saving medication, but because the prescription is so costly, because in the U.S. we pay more for prescriptions than any other nation in the world, your insurance company might not want to cover it off the bat. So they say, oh, we need prior authorization from your doctor. And I'm like, I wrote the dang prescription. I gave my authorization. What is this prior authorization stuff? So then you have to get on the phone and beg somebody to cover a patient's life-saving medication. Mm. And most of the time as a doctor, it's not me talking to another doctor. It's me talking to somebody who has zero training, medical training. Mm. They don't know how to pronounce the names of the drugs. So sometimes I'm explaining things to them and and sometimes they're saying things to me and I don't understand what they're saying because they're not pronouncing them right. And they go through this little checkbox and then at the end of the day, they'll say no or they say, we need more information. You got to send up some records and wait. And so in the interim, if you need chemotherapy, Mm. cancer saving, or you need a medication to to cure your hepatitis C, Mm -hmm. while you're waiting for this prior authorization, people die. I spent one hour on the phone trying to get a patient um, who had asthma, her medication she needed. She had health insurance and her employer covered her Medicare asthma inhaler for like years, years and years. All of a sudden, her employer just decided they're not going to cover that specific inhaler anymore. The inhaler that she needed to breathe. She had tried all the other inhalers. And so she knew and I knew which inhaler helped her breathe. Mm -hmm. But her employer just opted out of covering it. They just flat out refused to cover the one inhaler that helped her to breathe, just breathe normally. And so these are things that I spend a lot of time on as a doctor. Oh, and not only that, but sometimes I can't even get patients back to see me because they're tied up at the front desk trying to figure out insurance. Last week before I came here, I could have saw at least four more patients if they didn't get tied up at the front desk for us trying to verify and figure out their insurance. Yeah. So Medicare for all is going to save time. It's going to save money. It's going to increase overall job satisfaction for me. We talk about physician burnout. And one of the biggest reasons that I feel burnout as a physician is because people are rationing insulin. Mm. I went in this field to help people. And some days, Brianna, I just go home and I just think, did I do anything other than write a whole bunch of prescriptions Mm. and tests that I know people can't afford? And that is not why I went into this field. I just want to be able to go to work one day and leave knowing that everybody who saw me is going to be able to get the care and the treatment I need. And that's going to be exactly what happens with Medicare for All. I really appreciate your your humanistic and empathetic perspective. I mean, so often we hear these candidates on the debate stage talking about choice and reframing this as an issue where people are going to be kicked off their health care and not be able to access their doctors. And what you've really laid out with those anecdotes, with that, with that testimony, is how little choice people have when they're relying on their employer to provide them with coverage and how the employer can decide at a drop of a dime what you can and cannot access. So that's incredibly compelling. I don't know if you had a chance to see uh, Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed today in Essence about maternal health. Did you, did you have a chance to take a look at that? I did. I did. It was wonderful. It was, it was perfect. 
we know that when black women have health insurance, it decreases the black maternal mortality rate. We know that because in states where we expanded Medicaid, Mm -hmm. we decreased black maternal mortality. Medicaid is not good enough. It might take care of you when you're pregnant, maybe a month or two after you have the baby. But we need to take care of black women before they get pregnant. Mm. We need to take care of black women for their entire lives. We need to treat their high blood pressure before they're even thinking about getting pregnant. So expanding Medicaid is a good thing, but it's kind of laughable because it's like, no, that's not the best solution. The best solution is to guarantee health care everybody has a human right so you as a black woman can get care from birth to death not only the year you decide to get pregnant yeah it's remarkable remarkable to me that we understand we live in a country with racial bias we understand we live in a country where unfortunately too many people think that black lives don't matter and that when people get left behind in America, it's always disproportionately people from historically marginalized groups. And yet knowing that there are some who claim to be advocates for various minority groups who don't want universality in programs, right? Who want programs that are means tested, programs where somebody isn't going to access them, knowing full well what that somebody is going to look like. So I'm enormously appreciative of your advocacy. One last question I wanted to ask you is, do you have these conversations, not just with your patients, but friends and family about the Sanders campaign, about Medicare for all. I'm curious what tactics, what arguments are most useful to you in getting through to folks about why they should be part of this revolution? Okay. I have those conversations all the time. That's my favorite thing to do. (laughs) Um, My father, he is an older black male Mm -hmm. and he, at first he was leading more towards Biden. Mm -hmm. And so then we started talking the conversation about healthcare. He's a retired educator. Fortunately, in addition to Medicare, he has a good retirement benefit, Mm. but he still has the deductible. And so I started having conversations with him. He he fell and hit his head. Mm. Um, He just had a slip and fall and ended up in the hospital. So he had this huge hospital bill. But Mm. fortunately, because he had two insurance, Medicare and his insurance from being self-employed, his his deductible was affordable for him. Mm. But it's not for a lot of people. So I got my dad's attention with Medicare for all. He agrees that all people should have health care as a human right. So there is no person that I've encountered who loves their health insurance. That's right. a myth. I kind of like mine, but the kind only reason I kind of like it is because it's better than so many other people. And how messed up is that? The only reason it's likable is because it's better than the majority of people who have this horrible insurance. Right. And another big issue that I bring up and I usually get, I'm able to get people on board with Senator Sanders is cancel student debt. Mm. Um, as a physician, um, as a black physician, I incur more student debt than most of my white male colleagues in order to, to be a doctor. Yeah. And so in my household, we have probably about a half a million dollars in student debt. Yeah. So when I bring to people's attention that Senator Sanders is the only candidate who's going to cancel all student debt. That's another big issue other than Medicare for all that I'm usually able to get some people. Right. One of the things that really resonates with me about your approach there is when Bernie says that line about, will you fight for someone that you don't know? And we hear Pete Buttigieg and people like that saying student loan debt is for the kids of millionaires, as though people who are millionaires take out 8% interest loans for fun. You know, we hear people say, I like my insurance kind of purposefully indifferent to how many people are suffering under the current system. We don't see at debates, you know, we just had a debate last night 
right? None of the centrist candidates are asked how they justify all the people who are going to die by maintaining the status quo. They're not asked to justify how we're going to pay for an enormously expensive system that also doesn't deliver anything to the people that need it. Um, And when you hear a humanistic approach like that, and when you hear Bernie Sanders asking, will you fight for someone else? It really does, I think, speak to a lot of people who at some point in their life, at some juncture, in some context, understand what it is to be on the wrong side of the equation and to understand, I think, in a very pure way what solidarity means. So I really appreciate you joining me today, Dr. Dooley, and I hope to see you on the trail very soon. I'm going to have to come do it with you in D.C. next time. I would love that. That's it for this week. Hear the Burn is produced by Ben Dalton and Christopher Moore. Let us know what you think at heartheburn at berniesanders.com or else take to Twitter with the hashtag heartheburn. I love to read your feedback on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you get these episodes. So be sure to rate, review, or like us whenever you get a chance. Till next week. <laughs>